This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 164, brought to you in association with Smart Pension and the unlistedboard.com. I'm delighted to be joined today by Marcus Treacher, SVP of Customer Success at Ripple, to discuss next generation global payments infrastructure. Marcus has over 30 years of experience in transaction banking and payment technology, including 12 years at HSBC, being a member of the global board of Swift and a non-executive director of Chapsco, the UK's RTGS clearing company. Ripple has developed RippleNet, which is used by over 300 financial institutions in more than 45 countries as a next-gen global payments infrastructure. So between the combination of Marcus and Ripple, I think they may know a thing or two. Marcus will tell us more, but the historic global payments infrastructure was designed for a few participants to move large sums of money relatively slowly. The next-gen infrastructure is turning that on its head, extending functionality to moving small amounts of money quickly for everyone who connects to the internet which is quite a change. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Marcus. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Morning, and delighted to be with you today. Yes, indeed. And it's taken a little while for us to uh, be virtually together as um, the software, which I should, should not mention, but it, uh, <laughs> it starts with micro and ends with soft and the word Teams comes after. Decided that uh, my internet wasn't working when, when it was, uh, and therefore being in and out, so we're very pleased to actually be talking. And uh, this is a, a rare morning in, in late late September where the sun is streaming through my windows and it's quite sunny here. And uh, in the process of all these connections and disconnections, we were briefly talking about Portugal where Bridget and I were super lucky and the fates must have been looking after us. So the, the day after the UK made Portugal kosher again, uh, our refund from a disastrous failed skiing holiday in, in March happened to come through from a credit card company. So I thought, oh, let's blow this on overpriced hotels and overpriced things in, in the Algarve. So we went there for a week. Uh, a chum of mine, whose name I shan't mention, went for two weeks, coincidentally, at the same time, not to the same place. And we got back before the government uh, threw its latest dart and decided that, uh, you know, you're going to die if you go to Portugal, you'll spread death when you, when you come back. Uh, however, my chum actually got caught up in it. Uh, and therefore has got to sort of lock himself into the uh, the basement of his house for a couple of weeks. Putting this into context, uh, we, were, we were on the Algarve, uh, as was my buddy, although quite a way away. And over the over the whole period, so the the head waiter told me, uh, only 15 people have died of COVID, which is one a week. Um, but you were mentioning that you were less fortunate than me, and less fortunate perhaps than, than my buddy, in that your plan for Portuguese son didn't entirely succeed. No, we um, we actually had a holiday booked in uh, in Mallorca, which we which we gave up and then swapped to Portugal, and the only country left open. And then, as you say, the the dartboard game kicked in, and uh, now we're going to Scotland, which is a great place. So um, I won't get sunburnt there, I don't think, but um, looking forward to it massively. Yes, yeah, Scotland is quite a quite a big place. I mean, uh, a lot of my view of the world was formed on my school atlas, where. Everything was fitted onto a page of A4 or whatever it was, and, and Scotland's just this sort of little bit at the top of the sort of the, the UK. But it's not so little, really. My my younger has just started at the University of Edinburgh doing some masters, and right. they went to the Isle of Skye for a few days recently, uh, and her boyfriend, and they drove from Edinburgh, and it was something crazy, like I don't know about 
five and a half hours one way and six and a half or seven on the way back, which is, roughly speaking, for all people abroad, what it would be from London to, um, to Edinburgh. Yeah. So it's actually quite a big place. It is a beautiful country. And uh, you're right, much bigger when you're there than you think. So I'm looking forward to it massively. Yes, they don't exactly have autobahns. So um, w- when we were supposed to be going to Portugal, not that I want to start this podcast with you in tears. <laughs> <laughs> oh, next week, next week. So we, uh, we switch very late in the day. And I guess we'll, uh, we'll book it for next year and uh, <laughs> hopefully the world returns to some degree of new normality by then, but we'll see. Yes, yes. Well, there's the world as a whole and then there's, then there's, the, um, then there's the UK and I've, uh, we've got to the state of just sort of despair has moved to sort of kind of giving up and without moaning about all this stuff. I mean, I literally have to try and avoid it these days because it makes me so mad. I then just don't sleep if I read the, the news for a few days. But... <laughs> You know, highlights for people abroad, you know, have been that sort of in the in the recent sort of elevations to the Lords, which is now the, the second largest forum in the world after, I don't know, some Chinese Communist Party thing, hundreds and hundreds of ex-MPs. <laughs> Boris Johnson made his brother uh, a Lord and Theresa's husband got uh, knighted. And then when we're away, um, the government by fiat introduced a new law. It doesn't bother with Parliament. I mean, there's about 150 or 250 laws that have been passed without Parliament to find people organising protests, £10,000, this a few hours before midnight, and then promptly on the Sunday, <laughs> find Piers Corbyn, the, the brother of Jeremy Corbyn, who's uh, rather more active complaining about the government tyranny, and his brother hasn't said anything, oh, £10,000 for standing in Trafalgar Square and saying, I don't really agree with this. Uh, at the same time, I don't know whether it's XR or BLM, one of those that sort of the, the establishment favours over here, uh, they didn't find them uh, sent. Then, of course, we've had Christmas basically cancelled in this country for the first time since Cromwell, or rather cancelled if your family is bigger than six so only six people are allowed to get together for, for Christmas unless, and this is actually quite a, quite a useful consumer advice for anybody in the UK, there is an exemption, or rather the number six is changed to 30 uh, in the following circumstance. So if, you want to, if you've got a large family, listen, listen up now and don't turn off whatever you do, um, because uh, you can have 30 people as a get-together as long as you're shooting grouse. So for any, any large families out there, get a couple of grouse that sort of haven't actually been shot yet, put them in the garden and shoot them and you, you'll be fine for your, for your Christmas lunch. So anyway, so after all this kind of stuff, we just we did despair. And in fact, actually, yesterday we were looking up at uh, Portuguese property in the Douro. We thought we'd just get emigrate. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of holidays, actually, another useful piece of advice is I'd slipped into just using sort of debit cards and you know, Revoluts and Monzos and all that kind of stuff just because they're more convenient. But actually... By some mercy, I'd actually booked our skiing holiday on credit card. And it turns out that if you book something on credit card, going back to getting the refund, it was a million times easier than, than claiming through the insurance company. So uh, that's useful consumer advice, actually. Hopefully you booked it on credit card. Actually, we did. And you know, we got out of it without um, any financial loss. I'm just missing the, um, the sangria by the beach. But um, anyhow, maybe next year. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Good. OK, so... For reasons which were, will shortly become apparent as a little boy in short trousers, you decided you were going to spend your life in payments and, and you, you, you aimed there ever since. So, so how did all that happen? What age were you when you suddenly decided that payments was the, was the thing for you? Well, I guess it goes back to the, the Big Bang. of The Big Bang? That's going to be a long show, man. <laughs> Universe Big Bang. <laughs> Not 14 billion years ago, um, 34 years ago. Um, 86, 86. So I was working as a, a software engineer, just graduated with a physics degree in North London. And the city was just completely uh, deregulating, so much going on. I thought, I've got to be part of this. So I joined a, a European bank, started working in the, um, in the tech and ops department, and very quickly you know, um, got familiar with the, the plumbing, if you like, the, um, the unseen machinery that runs everything. 
And it fascinated me. So I then moved on to management consultancy, Accenture, and I, you know, my job would be to advise companies about using tech and adapting tech. And again, it all tended to fold back on the underlying plumbing. It's the it's the atoms that that, that support everything that we do in the financial world. So back onto Swift again, empty series messaging, um, you know, the dark art of um, you know, different formatting of information. My life then took me to Citibank um, and HSBC, 11 years with each of those institutions. And again, working with the plumbing, working with the payment networks, both Citi and HSBC are international. So that got me into the, the cross-border world. And it's interesting that because historically most people, like you and I talking about Portugal, we live our lives domestically. We might go abroad now and then on vacations. You know, it's only recently with the increase in global travel, the increase in um, migrations that people have been involved in the need to move money cross-border, to do things cross-border. So yeah, for, as you say, for, for, for decades or for centuries, cross-border activity for anything, including payments and, uh, and trade, has been the thing of large organisations, corporations, trading companies, big banks. And what became apparent to me was that the financial network was built for this you know, 18th, 19th century model. And all that happened in the 20th century was that we automated it, it didn't change it. So the world you know, has been sitting on you know, some pretty archaic methods for moving money around. And as the world becomes much more integrated, you know, the country becomes the planet. We live in a global village, no matter what's going on at the, in politics right now, the long-term, we're very much in a global village. And if that was a village in the UK, nobody in that village could pay each other properly. It would be a nightmare. The bread would be difficult to buy. Um, you know, the um, the fines would be hard to pay. Store fees wouldn't work because cross-border is very difficult. It was built for a time when individuals were not needing to move money around the world. And as you know, with um, digitization and you know the enormous transformation in how people and companies live their lives and operate today that weakness in the global payment network has become really acute. And that reality led me to look at new methods and models and led me to, to join Ripple. And here I am. Gosh, that all sounds incredibly logical and, and coherent. And um, there's a couple of things there, which is firstly that I joined the city roughly at the same time as you, having been a software engineer oh, okay. in 85. I'd been a software engineer in Bath, working on compilers, link editors and, and, and communications and stuff, and all that kind of jazz. And uh, again, again, along with the UK government, what led me to tears was when you used the word deregulation, because I remember deregulation. Uh, I was there for Big Bang. And now, of course, it's hyper-regulation, or as Lord Turner more accurately says, micro-supervision in many cases of FS. So that's all changed. And um, I had spotted after six years of doing the podcast that sort of technology and the internet and digitization and mumble, mumble, mumble is, is changing things. But uh, you explained very coherently uh, what I'd focused on less, which is that use cases do, which is when you and I joined the city in the 80s, we had no human reason really for sending small amounts of money to other people abroad because it was a sort of very domestic life. I mean, uh, as I mentioned many yes. times, Thatcher only removed, removed exchange controls in 1978, which so before 1978, you have to say, please, sir, can I have some some of this foreign money because I, I want to go to a foreign <laughs> place. So it has been an amazingly rapid change. And just going back and uh, just thinking about the dawn of um, global payments, going a little bit back nearer to the Big Bang, as in the, the big one, but not that much nearer. In terms of the, the origins of the money markets in, in 
in London. It really was predominantly the East India Company, 1600 onwards. And back in the day, basically franchises were given out um, or licenses to go in, in routes. So the Muscovy Company yes. got the license to go to China by going northeast from the UK, which was a really was a far side cartoon. I mean, little did they know that it wasn't very easy. <laughs> so on the first, and literally on the first mission of the Muscovy Company to find Cathay, it was called the Cathay Company, I think, two thirds of them froze to death rather sadly, and the other third of them managed to make it to Moscow. And then they thought, oh, fuck it, we'll trade with Moscow instead. <laughs> gave up on, we gave up on buying Cathay. But uh, the East India Company, because the Portuguese, talking of Portuguese, uh, our oldest ally, had led the way, found it a bit easier to get to the sort of Spice Islands, uh, although the Dutch beat the crap out of them, so they didn't really hang around yes. there, but hung, hung around more in India. And in terms of far side things, so they were given the franchise to trade UK goods for what they could find in the Spice Islands, which is spices, which were incredibly useful back in the yes, day, yes. Uh, when all our meat was rotten, and also the sort of, you know, nice cottons and silks and things from, from India. But unfortunately from them, their far side cartoon was that they were exporting wool, and they found pretty rapidly, but in those days pretty rapidly, it was after about two or three years, that funny enough, people living in what we'd now call sort of Indonesia and India didn't really want that much wool. So there was a huge problem, which I mean, forevermore, it led to, I mean, for a century, a century and a half, it led to a balance of payments, a huge balance of payments problem. So there's a huge problem in actually paying for all this stuff that they wanted. When they brought it back home, they could bring pepper back home at sort of one-tenth of the cost for example, that it, that it was done by the conventional route through the Middle East uh, and via Venice, yes. which had been done for, for centuries. So going back to payments, uh, their solution then, and which is where the money market started, which is that they, they realised that you needed um, Spanish reals or Dublins, I think it was reals, and they would be accepted around the world. They were the global currency, uh, but it's right, quite tricky right. to get them. So, so the London money markets and global payments based in London started with the desire to get a unit of value which was recognised around the world. And then going back to the speed, it would take, oh, in the early days, I don't know, nine months or so to actually get from London to there. So payments started in, in, in London and it used to take uh, nine months. And then when you and I started working, it took a few days. And now it's going to take even uh, even faster. I didn't quite know what's going to happen in 100 or 200 years' time. Really. Maybe they've abolished money or something. That's a good question. Um, yeah, I think the trend is definitely towards hyper-fast and hyper-small. And you, you're calling out, I think, some really good kind of background scene setters there in that the the, the the shift in time that people would accept has been enormous and it's going to continue in the same way that months to days was probably seismic days to seconds and microseconds will be seismic and that's that's happening now and the if you look at how people want to live their lives you look at the development of the internet of things the concept there are you know, about 50 billion devices today without people like you and me associated with them, plugged into the internet, all communicating, and they're going to be trading with each other too, and trading value, buying and selling. And all that activity cannot be supported if you're paying next day. And the networks that we've built you know, manually and then automated just aren't fundamentally up for it. And it's like having a really fast, highly tuned steam engine. It's still a steam engine, and you're not going to beat Lewis Hamilton on a um, on a sprint in a steam engine. And I think the big blocker is not that we're not being smart at you know, improving what we have. I mean, people are really smart and they work really hard at this stuff, as you and I know in the city and worldwide, that the problem is the fundamental machinery we're working with is steam engines. It's old. And I think we need a rethink, a, re, a reimagining of how these networks could look and work to enable Bob to buy Alice, and Bob could be in, in Indonesia, Alice in Chile, and they could be paying you know, a cent. And it should travel... In a microsecond, it should never get lost. There should never be a complaint. There should never be uncertainty. And you know that's the use case that people are after and companies are after. And that's really you know, 
again back to Ripple. That's uh, that's what we did. We went right back to the the foundations. We got a new tool set out, and we built, I guess, in today's metaphor, an electric car. We built a whole new engine from scratch using blockchain because we felt that you know if you run on the existing rails, you're never going to be able to get up to um, speed. Yes, and taking the the, the longer term picture here, I mean, it's a whole interesting podcast in itself but going back to global global trade from Europe that was a, a leap forward and it took them a long time to develop ships that basically didn't fall apart after about sort of three journeys and to yes, reduce the yes. journey time massively and all that kind of stuff and they were limited by sailing ships and there were lots of problems I mean I mentioned the Muscovy company but also the East India company two-thirds of them died on the on the first mission so that, you know that's terribly terribly dangerous stuff and if you look at that and also if you look at the Industrial Revolution, or rather the rollout of the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century, yes. and then also you look at the 21st century in terms of everything's digitised and, and very instant. I think what happens is that the stories we tell, or rather the way we relate to each other as a society, take a long time because we're human beings. We don't operate on microseconds to catch up. So the example I just gave, which is that the early trading companies, the early global UK companies, uh, most of the people died on, <laughs> on the first sort of uh, new graduates kind of, kind of thing, uh, which wasn't ideal. And then just kept keeping the caricature going, you know, in the 19th century, they invented all this sort of uh, steam and, and, and power and, and all that kind of jazz. And, you know, children were sent up chimneys to, to clean them. And that wasn't really very ideal as well. And it took a long time for the stories, uh, which were, of course, the stories would then be embedded in, in legislation saying, you know, thou shalt not send children up chimneys, you know, thou shalt not have sort of sweatshops and, and blah, de, blah, de, blah. De. Uh, it took a long time, a century or so in some countries for that to catch up. And now we're in a world of immediacy and that's causing its own problems and our stories haven't caught up. So roughly everything. I really don't know, but it's like, you know, Brexit uh, or, or, <laughs> or Trump or COVID or face masks. You go into something like Twitter, it's a dumpster fire between two warring camps a million miles apart who just sort of train sound bites about it. And also the, the over, the excessive information uh, it's just de destroying our dopamine systems. I watched a very good YouTube the other day actually on how to, how to get difficult stuff done. And the key to getting difficult stuff <laughs> difficult stuff done, I mean, for example, I got my pension stuff to sort out. And I, st I started last year, it was a nightmare, and I gave up. This guy said was actually to, you know, just have no internet until about 4 p.m. or something, and then to have a couple of hours of internet at 4 p.m. Right, right. Because it uses up, because your dopamine system there, you need to have enough dopamine, as it were, to, to repay you for putting in the hard work. Otherwise, <laughs> it, it's metaphor, mixing my metaphors, if you spend your life eating sugar cubes, you, you, you will, you'll feel that you're satiating your hunger, but actually you won't eat your dinner and, and you won't eat all the nutritious stuff. And I think, coming back to the COVID, uh, the COVID situation um, right now, a, a lot of what we've seen is this immediacy uh, is actually just led like a chain of dominoes. You know, governments panicked, didn't know what to do, thought, oh, we'll copy the other government, you know, and, and all this goes around. And you talk about everything being immediate in the tech world, it is, but, you know, what I've found, uh, speaking to a number of companies uh, recently, is that although the technology is immediate and we've got Zooms and Microsoft Teams, which sometimes works, the speed of lighting companies has slowed down. So a number of people are saying that in terms, you know, businesses have done incredibly well uh, at managing uh, from a, yes. basically a work from home thing for the last six months. But... Business development people in particular, who are trying to do something different, trying to get things together, trying to do something new, they're saying it's taking so much longer. And you know, I'm, I'm talking to a company at the moment about doing something with them. And they said to me, Mike, normally we would have sorted this out weeks ago because we all sit next to each other. Right. I'd, right. I'd walk around the floor and, and in five minutes they say, oh no, forget it. Or they go, yeah, let's do it. He said, but now I have to organize Zooms with all the various people and get them together. So yes, the human speed of light 
is one that's easily forgotten. And we will now get very excited for the rest of this podcast about technology and the speed of lighting technology. But, <laughs> but it's, it's always to be borne in mind, going back to all these, all these stories over the centuries of the, of the first payment systems that you knew, or, or the older ones, that all of this technology, at the end of the day, does have the wetware on it, does have the human beings on it. And, you know, we can get to a stage where the, the human being is, as we say, is, is, is a limitation or, or rather is massively stressed by the technology. Wow, that's getting into a, yeah. another <laughs> podcast entirely. Of... <laughs> right on that bombshell, on that bombshell, I shall uh, I shall leave everybody going back to be a luddite, smashing their computers and, and going off to sort of draw wood from the well. So let's dive into the wonderful technology, and it is a wonderful technology. It's like a faster oh, car. Um, so let's let's talk about making making the the faster car, the social challenges we can have in a, another podcast. So uh, you you can pick up on that if a little bit if you want, but otherwise we can we can we can look at the. Um, Doing the faster payments. Everybody wants faster payments. Uh, I've mentioned before, I'm you know, going to do a, a worldwide range of London FinTech podcast hoodies, which I think is going to take the world by storm, which means I want micro payments from people all, all over the world. And I can't do that with the existing system. So uh, is the next generation here uh, at the moment? Uh, is it here in part? Is it here in full? I mean, there's Ripple, uh, who will tell us a bit more about RippleNet, and there's Alipay and Tencent and, and all these kind of participants. Going back to yeah. the 1980s, that was definitely what we now call sort of the old generation of, of, of payments technology. And it worked very well. I mean, you know, by and large, I've never had a payment go wrong in my life, and most people haven't. So where are we now, Marcus, in terms of the new generation? Is it 10% here, 90% here, 50% here? It's here. It's very, very here. So our network is it's global. We plug into 45 countries already. We've got 300 uh, customers. Customers for us are you know, large banks, uh, large payment companies, like some MoneyGram, Asimo, you know, Standard Charters, Santander, those kind of guys. So we're real. We're pumping billions of dollars. We're using digital assets. We're using direct direct connectivity. So the big message for for the podcast is that we're real. We're in play. The one thing that's really fascinating about the your intro around you know people catching up is that the big challenge in getting the next generation of payments right is to take people with you. Take the ecosystem with you. I mean, anybody can build a blockchain in a lab, and we've got a lot of competitors who you know were giving us a run for money but aren't anymore. They're off in the corner developing wonderful shiny things. And of course, you can't plug them into a world that thinks differently, has international regulation, international friction, you see trade issues popping up. And I think to get the world onto newer technology, a fundamental shift, you've also got to work the governance, you've got to build something that fits into the modern world or the existing world and takes it forward, right? So the approach we took was to think, okay, there are loads of payment companies out there. You called out a few like Alipay, and there's PayPal, Tencent, the old-fashioned Swift. Yeah, there are many, many, many of them. And the common theme is that they all act like islands or clubs. So if you're in the club, you can make payments for the people who are in the club. Arguably, being in a country is like being in a club. You and I and many of the listeners are in the sterling club. So you pay for things, pay each other in pounds sterling, works because you're in the club. If you look at the world in its entirety, it's made up of hundreds of these little patches, little little islands. Some of them are very big, many are very small. But there's nothing to interconnect them. And the, the situation is very similar to the one the world had before the internet kicked in, in around 2000, where you have many, many independent networks of data but nothing interconnecting. So you and I on this podcast, we've been setting up phones and recordings. They've got QuickTime running. We've got all kinds of um, gadgetry between us, and it's all running smoothly over IP. Now, when you and I were coding back in the 80s, 
that, that would not have been possible. So I think the the aha moment we had was, okay, if we can create an internet for money, an internet of value that connects together all these islands in a way that the internet of information using the magic of IP connected data together in the early noughties, we could enable the financial world to catch up with the information world. And that's really important. So if we can deliver money cross-country, cross-border in microseconds with what's called atomic certainty, so it never gets lost, then you've got a model that can keep up information. And that's what we built. And that's why, you know, I genuinely think we're different and I genuinely think we're doing something that's beyond, you know, what I think all other players are doing in this uh, in this field. Yes, and hearing you say that, I mean, it's a good segue given that you spoke about the importance of the interface between technology and human society, should we say at large, or, or organisations. Yes. It's, it's no good building something and you shed and then going and hiring a marketing team and a, and a salesman to go and try and flog it. You yes. have to change behaviours and you have to change how organisations work. And as we were both in quotes, the old city or the, the, the big incumbents, we know that for a whole bunch of actually relatively sensible reasons, it takes a while to effect change in large organisations. So maybe we can dive into it in, in terms of RippleNet at the sort of schematic level just to give people an understanding and actually it occurs to me I didn't ask you this sort of very uh, I don't know if it's rude or embarrassing or this is a kudos question about whether when as, as an old techie you went into the city I was, I was an old techie you went into the city and, and then he promptly said promptly said I know nothing about technology whatsoever and they all took me sort of uh, on, on trust and so actually <laughs> I just got into doing the merchant banking bit which was which was one way <laughs> to sort of go <laughs> sideways but um, you did technology uh, outside inside consultancy and you know, you've seen it in the sort of 360 round did, did you ever do a COBOL program Marcus if I can ask you a sort of very direct and personal question yeah I, I cut my teeth on Lydia B definitely oh wow and, uh, and Cunic language so yeah hey I was a co- I was a COBOL programmer I was a Fortran programmer I then taught myself Java to figure out how this oh, object stuff there's probably works. a bit of a gap so, uh, between Fortran and Java context. wasn't there about 20 years yeah <laughs> <laughs> My first program was in Fortran. It was sort of, you know, the usual hello, hello world kind of one. Yes. Uh, anyway, so you are, and, you know, people should write your history, you should write your autobiography and all, all that kind of stuff for future reference because you are one of these bridges from the old world of, uh, of technology. I saw some amazing stat recently about, I can't remember, I don't know, 85% of American banking technology runs off uh, know, a billion lines of COBOL or, or something like that. So very much unseen to the sort of modern whippersnapper, but uh, it's still there um, at the core, um, which is one yes. reason one needs to start again. So begin, go on to the start, start again. You knew the strengths and weaknesses of the old systems and going back to things changing. If you'd said the word blockchain, and I get really sort of bored by the word blockchain these days because I have no idea what it means when people use it, but if you said the word blockchain to me five years ago, I would assume you meant uh, what Bitcoin is based on, you know, proof of work, uh, open system, mumble, 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 which as we found over the years kills polar bears and, and you know, you ask for your skinny right. decaf extra cappuccino, sprinkle latte, and you're, you're waiting 15 minutes for the, the block to freeze hard enough for them to be sure, yada, yada, all that jazz. More recently, I was speaking to a couple of businesses, they used the word blockchain, they just meant a distributed database. So without blinding people <laughs> with science, if you could get your virtual whiteboard, audio whiteboard out, uh, and just sketch us what RippleNet is, perhaps without even using the word blockchain, then maybe we could get beyond words and, and onto what it is you guys actually did and, and how you did it, which I think is, is fascinating. And then, then we can end up with saying, oh yes, it's a bit like a blockchain, it, it, it isn't really. Or... 
Yeah, certainly. I'll, if you've got your swear books ready, um, I'll attempt to do it without mentioning the, uh, the, the <laughs> word. <laughs> As a scene setter, the important thing is to not get hung up on the tech. The tech is just tall, it's a tool set. And as time goes on, there are better tools to play with. And, you know, what we've done at Ripple, we've picked the best tools and applied them to the problem. And what we did, we worked at three levels. So to, to run a or to solve cross-border payments, you've got to work at three levels. So one, you've got to have what we Brits call a scheme. So, you know, Visa's a scheme, MasterCard's a scheme, UK Clearing's a scheme. It's a set of rules and banks and payment companies that use Ripple's technology sign up to this governance body that we've set up. We don't own it. We set it up. We manage it for the banks and payment companies, but it's theirs. And they use that forum to govern the rules and regulations that enable them to feel comfortable paying each other using Ripple technology. And that's where I think my chat made about ISO 20022. ISO 20022 links to Ripple because our governance body, the governing body of RippleNet, is a member of the ISO 20022 kind of management uh, unit. And that's important because it's all about standards. And, you know, these things never go away. So you have better technology, a revolution in how you do things, but you've got to have the standards. So we have the standards, ISO 2022 compliant, and we govern that. That's number one. And on governance, for people who live in payments, they'll know all about that jazz. For people outside payments, they often don't realise that it's not just, as it were, quotes, a bunch of wires connecting things so you send your electrons down. But yes. there is a whole kind of, let's call it, mini societal scheme of rules and laws about how a society, the payment society, as it were, operates. So, and a good example being the credit card payment. I got, exactly. the, got the money back from the credit card. That is not because of how MasterCard actually transfers money around the world as, as money. But it's because it's wrapped in a bunch of rules, and in this case, a bit of insurance, which says, well, actually, if the yes. supplier doesn't supply it, then the payment can get be reversed. And mumble, mumble, mumble. It's all that very complex jazz, isn't it? Exactly. If I'm in the UK and I want to pay my friend in Thailand £100, then if my bank is using Ripple, it wants to know that the bank at the other end of the chain using Ripple is going to translate that money to Thai bahts. It's going to want to give it the information required for that bank to send that payment into the Thai Bark clearing system, which is called PromPay, to deliver that money immediately. If it goes wrong, if the person is, um, I know, God forbid, dead or the account's closed, that bank needs to know the method. They're going to be told that the payment hasn't worked. So that governance is really important. And we built it, we defined it from scratch only about four years ago. And that gives us the anchor within which we could run a really 21st century network. So far, hey, no tech involved, no B word, a pure rethink of how you should manage an open, the key thing is open, an open payment network between anybody to anybody, payment company and bank around the world. And that's working. Just to pick up the word open, just so we get the big picture right, just being sort of a bit dumb here, which is an easy, easier role for me to play. So what does the word open mean in the following context that I understood the first part of what we're talking about, which is that you've got this scheme as being basically, uh, and if I give the wrong answer, then at least you can correct it. It's basically that how Ripple works, along with all other schemes, Visa, MasterCard, RTGS, you name it, is that it's a club. Let's just say it's a building, that you go into this building and they say, oh, you can join the club, but you've got to sign up to the rules. These are the rules of the club. And within the club, everybody follow those rules around refunds and you know, blah, 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 and all that kind of yes. stuff. And that the infinite use case where, for example, everybody in the world can, can access it uh, at some point in the future, be more successful. I wouldn't, for example, connect personally to you 
without going via the club, without going via that building and all the people and their rules, in large part for my protection. So I know if it goes wrong, I'll, I'll get my money back and, and that jazz. So yes, I'm a little bit confused over the sort of what I'm saying club, which may be the wrong word, but and regulation and schemes and then the use of the word open. It's open because anybody can join it. So right now we plug into providers of, of banking or providers of payment uh, service. So to individuals, they'll use their, um, let's say their transfer go in the UK, for example, of their customers, or they might use a Newham in Singapore. And that company will use Ripple to connect to you know, any other bank or payment company in its network. In future, you may have a world where the tech would support person to person, but we'll get to that a little bit later. The reason the um, the rules and the governance body is open is anybody can join it. Any payment company and uh, bank can join it. And then what they then do is abide by those rules for their own benefit. That's working, I think, extremely well. And the second layer of Ripple, I think I'm painting my picture on my whiteboard, is interconnecting I got a bit technical here, the ledgers, you know, the um, the core databases of payment companies and banks that are using Ripple. So, so a payment company would buy the Ripple software. You could run it on cloud or they could run it on on-prem. And that software kind of behaves a bit like, you know, a web server. It's a connector. And what it does is when a payment is going to move from a bank in one country on behalf of a, of a customer initiating the payment to a bank or payment company in another country, the two Ripple connectors in each bank find each other and at the same moment in time, using cryptography, again, I'm using the B word, but it's part of B, okay, cryptography, to at the same time, the same moment in time, update their ledgers. So in double entry bookkeeping speak, both balance sets in both institutions, bank A in one country, bank B in the other country, are completely aligned and updated at the same point in time. So just pressing pause there. So and go back to old blockchain. Everybody who runs the, the blockchain, you know, I'm running on my computer today. I'm not, but anyway, let's say I were. I would have a ledger, using your phrase, of, of every payment transaction, sort of ever or whatever. In the yeah. model that you've got, as I'm hearing you say, there isn't a ledger of every transaction ever in the world that everyone has to keep updating and arguing over whether it's true or not, and the majority, right. blah blah blah. It's more like the old scheme where you know, let's just say I'm a bank, the London fintech podcast bank, and I've got a record of all my payments and, and let's say you're, you're, you know, you're Marcus Streetcher Bank and you've got a record of all yours. One of your clients and one of my clients sort of does something and we sort of, we basically do a sort of an instant settlement as it were and we go, yeah, 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 it is a thousand dollars. You go, yeah, no, it's a thousand dollars and it's a, it's a million baht. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And you just kind of shake hands. Yeah, it's a deal kind of thing. And it's dealt. Is that metaphorically speaking right? It is. Again, the, the important thing is not to get hung up on the religion of the B word. And um, so you said it on me, so you're owing me <laughs> 10 pounds. <laughs> so um, the key is that um, so far, I've introduced the concept of cryptography. So you find cryptographic techniques when blocks in standard B networks are you know locked in. But we've taken that cryptographic technique and we've applied it to something very different. And you're dead right We've applied it to keeping ledgers that are very different from each other, completely synchronized when money moves between them. And if you do that, again, you're departing from the holy you know, structure of pure B to something different. But that's the magic that unlocks an internet model. That's the magic of IP. And we call it ILP, Interledger Protocol. And it's a kind of a play on the term internet protocol. Okay. So... That network is managing millions of payments. We do a few million 
every year right now and we're growing at tenfold per annum so you know it's it's working it's very effective and it's delivering immediate payments around the world which is fantastic and you're dead right so far i've only introduced a tiny component of the usual kind of portfolio of a of a b network and it's also worth pointing out that the structure is infinitely scalable it's an internet model and it doesn't cook the planet so it's highly highly efficient because you're purely coordinating using cryptography the balances in accounts around the world now so far if it put the rules in place and i have this network running i've solved the immediate payment problem great but i haven't solved the liquidity problem and that is there's loads of money trillions locked up in accounts all over the world overnight money because people got to park it there in yen or in dollars or in the nigerian currency to fund these payments moving around. And that's a big, big source of um, constraint for payments globally today. What we've then done to cure that problem is introduce the third level of our network. And this really is, I'm going to use it, this really is a classic blockchain. There you go, I've said it. And this element is a blockchain that uses consensus methods to keep it current, which is very different to Bitcoin's mining and is hyper-efficient and does not draw in gazillions of jewels of energy and is extremely fast. I'm just pressing pause, this third layer, because I'm, ha- I'm scribbling on my whiteboard here, I might be making it an error. The third layer of technology is what you're saying, that let's just talk about a building. So that everybody in the building, it's an open thing, so anybody can join as long as they sign up to the rules and, and presumably to have some sort of bona fides. You wouldn't yep. want me joining RippleNet because I got no capital or something. Anyway, put that to one side. So everyone in this building, they have to have liquidity, i.e. sort of spare cash to sort of, you know, fund all this stuff while it moves to around. Fund it. yeah, yeah, yeah. And are you saying that this more classic blockchain is used within the club by the members to keep track of all those liquidity pools? Is that what you're saying? Have I misunderstood? Okay, so yes, your description is very accurate, but it goes further, you see. So the, the central blockchain isn't for keeping track of liquidity. It's for delivering liquidity in the moment from one currency to another. So it works like a bridge currency. So in the old SWIFT web looking at the world, The ownership of money is moved via an MT103 between person to person via a bank. The funding of that money is moved by an MT202, which is shuffling money around different banks around the world with um, FX desks. And it's that level, it's that layer, which the use of Ripple's blockchain, which runs on, runs with digital assets like XRP, for example, that model enables us to deliver liquidity without all that pre-funding. And we so far delivered $2 billion of liquidity that way into Mexico and into Philippines. So again, the key thing about Ripple is we don't just theorize, we do. And it's working. This stuff is working. So to recap on my whiteboard, we have the governance, a new governing model, which is RippleNet. We have the network using cryptography. And we also have that blockchain for delivering liquidity. And the three of them together solve that problem for cross-border. I see. Well, you've explained it extremely well, given that we can't all see the whiteboard. Right. <laughs> OK. I'm pleased that I got you to sort of sketch it out because these layers are very important. Just wrapping up on the third layer, this more classic blockchain for liquidity, again, just to make it clear to people who may not have a payments background or some people listen to this who haven't got an FS background, just interested in, in tech and how things 
change. Simplistically put, I'm the London FinTech Podcast Bank. I start doing international payments. And let's say it's just old school, like I send ships out or something like that. So I need on my desk a pile of yen and I need a pile of dollars and I need a pile of sterling and I need a pile of euros just in case a ship turns up and says, oh yeah, you've agreed to send some euros. Oh good, have I? Right, so I take the euros from my desk. I haven't actually necessarily got the other one back at the moment. So we could call it a float in a sense. Is that a reasonable way of looking at it? The liquidity is a different word? It, it is, yes, it is, it is, yes, yes. So you've got the float, and you need to maintain, as you say, that's got a cost, and RippleNet is, is a very efficient way of doing that. So I'm centuries-old London FinTech Podcast Bank. I've got a pile of sort of Spanish reals on my desk, and the East India Company coming, yep. they go out, and blah de blah de blah and a pile of sterlings and all this kind of kind of jazz. Suddenly I go forward in a, in a time machine, and I'm let into the, the, the RippleNet club, and you guys say to me, Blimey, you, you know, you look very old. You don't need to wear sort of masks or talk like uh, um, masks as a Freudian slip. You don't need to wear <laughs> wigs and talk like Shakespeare. Oh, that's good, because it was really tough talking like Shakespeare. You say, and also you don't need all that currency jazz for liquidity. Oh, really? Oh, wow. You need the sort of the ripples or whatever. So what are the, what are the ripples? What, what is, the, is, this, is this the XRP thing you mentioned? What is actually the, the, the currency of account or the currency of value in your liquidity scheme just for the completest model? Well, what you do, you say to the, uh, the guy in the wig, you just got to have sterling. Don't buy any foreign currency. Keep the money in pounds. You recognize it. It used to be physical. Now it's in your bank, but it's sterling. What you then do is whenever you're making a payment around the world, it's going to go in a microsecond because it's a ripple net. The payment will translate into the target currency, the yen or, or um, you know, a South African rand, or whatever it is. It'll translate automatically. It'll use... A bit of tech, which we call XRP, you guys won't see that, that tech enables your sterling to be swapped only when you need to swap it, at the time to swap it to the currency you need. So when your ship, it's an aeroplane now, or whatever it is, is, is landing in Japan, and you're going to pay for stuff, you haven't got to hold Japanese yen overnight, you haven't got to hold it over the weekend, you're not taking a risk on Japan. You can move your money in a microsecond, the, the underlying, you know, the assets, the pounds, into Japanese yen, and it jumps via XRP on our blockchain. So it's a complete record globally in the moment. And that transforms liquidity. I had a banker come to see me the other week, and he said, look, I've got a problem. He says, payments are speeding up worldwide. They're getting so fast, especially with you guys, that you're doing a ripple. I can't move my money quick enough on behalf of my customers. This guy was banking loads of big corporations. He was worried that he couldn't physically plant the money in the different accounts quick enough at the right level to cope with the speed of payments. Okay, So the liquidity model we have using a B, a blockchain, an XRP, on the one hand, it's a massive liberator because it unlocks all that trap capital. It means you're a guy in London with the wig. Suddenly, you know, he gets to keep you sterling. It takes no risk. You can pay somebody on a Sunday night, Monday morning, what he can then do is pay somebody literally in, in Kenya and that person can receive good value any time of day because they're being funded through the XRP ledger supporting immediate payment. And the key thing is, as the world speeds up, it's going to speed up massively for payments. I think we'll be in the vanguard of that. That liquidity problem goes from being a problem to being an absolute ball and chain and it needs solving. So the, the liquidity piece that we've solved around XRP, we call it on-demand liquidity because it is, you know, literally it's your guy with the wig. It's on-demand liquidity for him or for her, I should say, to paying in any part of the world they wanted to pay for whatever they're moving. On-demand liquidity, and you've got to have that in a world where your money's moving immediately. 
you haven't got the luxury of waiting till tomorrow morning to go do some funding, get the money in the account for the big payment, because there are no big payments. There'll be gazillions of micropayments that you won't be able to predict. Excellent. I see. Well, I'd always heard and, and thought that sort of uh, Ripple and RippleNet were doing something sort of very different uh, and very interesting. And I think that uh, what I've got from speaking to you, Marcus, is that you have this combination of deeply thorough understanding of the old schemes of payments and the important things about them which we cannot get rid of, for example, schemes. And also, you've deconstructed the existing business model and, and, and produced this sort of multi-layer thing that has the advantage you say. I had one final question, which is that let's just say there's this, this club of people who who are in a Ripple, and inside the club, there's a sort of a, a treasurer in a room, uh, and he's the bloke who's doing the sort of uh, doing the. He's got XRP on his door or whatever. He, he's the he's the guy who actually does all this sort of transferring stuff. The last thing, but uh, we could go on for hours, but we won't. So I'll just ask you one more question. The final thing is that where does the FX transfer in the real world take place? So I am London FinTech Podcast Bank, and I have Sterling, and I'm in the club, and I go and see Mr Ripple Treasurer in the middle or whatever, Mr XRP, whoever he is, and I say, oh, I've got to send a, a, a thousand pounds to to Mr and Mato who wants yen. He goes, yeah, sure, sorted. And he goes, oh, that's quick. Blimey, you're fast. Uh, and on the other hand, <laughs> Mr Nakamoto said, I, I believe I, I'm owned 150,000 yen. Where is it? So there must be some conversion of, of real currencies from one to t'other. Where, where does that fit in? Unless I'm getting confused. No, it's okay. So that fits in within the message for the payment. So what Ripple does, it includes the quoting of FX when you're swapping currencies, when you make that immediate payment using our RippleNet connection, bank A to bank B. So what's happening is that the rate is quoted for, it's accepted, the transactions are then affected by changing the ledger at the same time, or within a microsecond, or within Ripple. And then on the receiving side, that money is either shipped in via the old-fashioned fiat methods by um, topping up money in a fiat account, or if they're using the on-demand liquidity service we have using XRP in the, uh, the blockchain, that money can be funded in a microsecond directly from the uh, the source currency. Again, once the rate's been agreed between the two computers without anybody being needed to be involved. Excellent. Well, I thought that you would, uh, with your background, understand all this stuff. And I also thought that Ripple will have thought about it all. And clearly, uh, okay. <laughs> okay. both are true and there's an infinite amount of detail within it. But uh, more importantly, uh, in terms of the, the podcast, I hope that it's given listeners quite an insight into the sort of the, the important schematics, as you say, all the sort of the, the, you know, the layers of coding at the bottom is not so important, of how Ripple works and the various, various layers and uh, how innovative that is and how rich it is. I mean, often the, the tendency in the tech world is to produce an oversimplistic solution to something. But again, everything is embedded in society. Everything is embedded in terms of connecting people in organisations. And, you know, that's much more complex than just sending the uh, electrons. And I think you, you guys have shown that. So before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there. I'd like to thank my brand partners on the podcast, Smart Pensioner, Fast, Secure and Free. Check out their UK workplace pensions at autoenrolment.co.uk. The enlistedboard.com, resources to help you start making your board an engine of growth. So, Marcus, you and Ripple have done these amazing things. You and Ripple are not yet infinitely all-seeing and all-powerful and uh, the largest company in the world. So how are you going to get to the largest company in the world? And in particular, briefly, what's your vision of the future? And in terms of uh, the millions of listeners out there, which of those could be helping you tomorrow and uh, checking you out? Yeah, look, we, we would love more members. We would love to connect to more receivers around the world, take more traffic from senders. We are massively revenue positive in that we we take out tons of cost as payment provider folks listening to the podcast i'm sure will uh, have realized and we also generate revenue streams for receivers for agency banks using ripple hey come join and it works we've proven it 
We're engineers, you know, we, we, we cut our teeth in the real world over the past four years and we're growing really fast. So love to have people join and love to have the network grow even quicker. Excellent. Well, thank you very much indeed for that, Marcus. It's been a fascinating coverage of the Big Bang to the present. And I think out of that, we've got sort of, uh, you know, a unique experience of uh, an understanding based in how things were how they're going, the human complexity, as well as the technology. And I think the sort of the fascinating way in which Ripple has refactored the whole show and thought about it radically whilst preserving some features that would have been around for centuries and at the same time doing something in a very 21st century way. So I wish you every success in the future. And as you say, for payments and banks and anybody like that listening, it certainly sounds to me that you may or may not want to use Ripple, but you absolutely, uh, if you're an organisation, should be checking these guys out and have a reason that you do want to use them or, or don't want to use them. I think it would be sort of slightly negligent not to knock on your door and um, find out about this uh, lovely club in, uh, in virtual Mayfair. <laughs> so thank you very much for that, Marcus. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board, get in touch with me at mike at londonfintechpodcast.com. We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance we could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride To come away from the city Tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so great With the pain of the Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye City goodbye. Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.